You're listening to Theology for the Rest of Us. You've got tough questions. We'll try to give you easy answers. Now, here's your host, Kenny Ortiz. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back. I'm Kenny Ortiz. This is Theology for the Rest of Us coming at you from the beautiful metropolis known as the Twin Cities, sometimes nicknamed the Frozen Tundra, Um, but it is the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Thank you so much for taking time out to listen to this episode of the podcast. Thanks for listening. Uh, Thanks for downloading. Thanks for allowing me and this podcast and the interviewees that I bring on this show. Uh, Thank you for allowing us to have a voice in your life. So glad to have you. This is episode 261, and in this episode, I'm going to be interviewing uh, a man by the name of Ben Stanhope. Uh, Ben lives in the nation of Germany. And he is uh, an expert in uh, a a study or training and studying to become an expert and scholar in the field of textual criticism um, and the study of ancient manuscripts. And so uh, I'm really, really excited to uh, bring him, uh, bring this interview to you. Uh, It's been quite some time, several months since I posted an episode. I know I've heard from many of you by email and Twitter and Facebook. Uh, Thank you so much for sticking with me. Uh, I really appreciate that. I've just been super busy, uh, but I do intend to continue to post episodes uh, throughout the course of of 2019. This is the first episode in the calendar year of 2019, and I continue, I I will uh, continue to post many more episodes in the coming months. Uh, I promise it's just been, just been super swamped. Uh, For those of you who have been following the podcast uh, regularly, you know that over the last several months, I've posted several episodes on topics related to creation, evolution, origins of the universe, origins of the earth, Genesis chapter 1, things of that nature. And one topic that frequently comes up is the topic of dinosaurs. So I touched on that in episode 260, 260. I encourage you to go back and listen to that. And in that episode, I, I answered the question whether or not dinosaurs are mentioned in the Bible. And after that episode went live a while back, I got a message from uh, Tyler Vela, who is a previous podcast interviewee. I've had him on the show before. And uh, he pointed me to Ben Stanhope's message, or excuse me, Ben Stanhope's work, and basically just said, hey, I think you should check it out. I think he's got a a slightly different view than what you promoted on episode 260. I checked out Ben's stuff and absolutely loved it, thought it was really valuable, and thought definitely want to bring him on the podcast. So reached out to Ben, and now he is, uh, I've got to just interview him, and he'll be on this episode. A quick bio on Ben. Um, He is originally... Uh, He lived in the U.S. Uh, He trained in apologetics at Biola University. Uh, He also did undergrad work and finished his bachelor's degree at Southern Seminary, the Undergraduate College of Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. It's a, a great seminary that I highly respect a lot. And and then he and his wife moved to Germany for him to uh, pursue a graduate degree, a master's degree um, in the arena of studying ancient manuscripts, which uh, very few schools in the entire world have that sort of degree program. And so he is there uh, studying that. So I'm excited to interview him and bring uh, bring you the insights that he's been learning. He's specifically going to talk about uh, the biblical references to the Leviathan and the Behemoth, and their various opinions from different biblical scholars and theologians and pastors on the topic of the Leviathan and the Behemoth, 
uh, frequently young earth creationists would say that's a reference to dinosaurs. Uh, many old earth creationists would say that's a reference to the hippopotamus or the crocodile or some other ancestor, some you know large or unique ancestor to the, the, the modern creatures that we know as the crocodile or the hippopotamus. Or, and then there are others that would say, no, it's, um, it's a different creature altogether that has gone extinct and is no longer uh, around. Uh, there are different uh, varying opinions. And again, you can hear so, some more specifics about that in episode 260. If you have not listened to my thoughts on that, I encourage you to go check that out. Um, ben, however, is going to sort of talk about the fact that as we study the scripts and manuscripts from the ancient world, um, we we learn more about the uh, the cultural context in which the Old Testament was written, and therefore gives us some insights into different references in the Old Testament, like the Leviathan, like the Behemoth, that maybe gives us a little more understanding. There's more to meets the eye there. There's there's a deeper understanding there, and that if we understand the culture uh, based on some of the other manuscripts that we've discovered from that region of the world and that era, then it gives us a better understanding of what the Bible's actually talking about, and that's what we're going to unpack in the interview. And one other quick thought before we get to the interview is the audio quality is not fantastic. First, uh, Ben and I started uh, using Skype, and then we had to switch to Google Hangout, and and we, we had a variety of issues, um, you know, because of internet connections uh, where he's at. Um, and so I tried my best to do some editing and kind of splice it in the best way possible. There was actually it was the interview was actually much longer, but a chunk of it was just not audible, so we had to had to cut some of it out, uh, unfortunately. Um, and, and you'll notice throughout the course of the interview that there are parts of it that sound crystal clear, and then there are parts where it automatically kind of sounds a little bit jumbled. I had to kind of uh, splice some things together, and it kind of goes up and down a little bit, so I apologize for that, but I'd encourage you to push past that because I really think the insights and the conversation that I had with Ben are, are really worth uh, pushing past some of the, the audio content or the audio quality that's not spectacular. So again, I apologize about that, but encourage you to push through. So without further ado, my interview with Mr. Ben Stanhope. We are on the line with Ben Stanhope from the, the great nation of Germany. Uh, ben, thanks for, for taking time out, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for inviting me. I um, I didn't realize it when I invited you on the podcast that you live in Germany. You're a grad student there. We'll talk about that in a second. Um and it's about five or so my time, but it's after midnight your time. It's in the nighttime there. So, again, thank you for, for taking time out. Uh, before we get to any content, I'd love to just ask you to tell the audience, to give us a little bit of information of who you are, you know, just where you're from, what you do, and how, how you ended up in Germany. Uh, well, my name's Ben Stanhope. Uh, I have a certificate in apologetics from Biola University and a bachelor's degree in Christian worldview and apologetics from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And I was, I was also a Garrett Fellow at uh, SBTS for a little while. Uh, story of how I got to Germany. Um, well, I'm training here for a master's degree um, in ancient manuscripts. Uh, there's a place at Hamburg University where they have thousands of ancient manuscripts uh, from around the world called the Center for the Study of Manuscript Cultures. So I'm doing my master's degree there. And so you uh, you were at Biola and then at Southern, and then you went to Germany to study manuscripts. Um, now, some people listening to this are going to be very familiar with that. There's going to be others that are going to have no clue what you're talking about. So give us a, a quick education on what is, when you say manuscripts, what that means. Uh, manuscript is any uh, document that's portable. 
that contains handwritten material. Uh, that'd be that'd be a loose definition of it. So what I'm primarily focusing on is uh, ancient Judaic literature. So I mean, in essence, you know, long before the print press, people were writing things down. The Bible was handwritten for right. centuries and centuries. Um, and those copies, we frequently refer to them as manuscripts as well. I, I don't think people uh, usually realize just how many hundreds of thousands of ancient manuscripts we have that a lot of them haven't even had material uh, or any other sort of academic research done to them. Hmm. Uh, for example, my my school, I think it's uh, something like 300,000 manuscripts were saved from Timbuktu uh, from uh, Islamic terror from Islamic terrorists. My university helped uh, with that, uh, helped to save those manuscripts. Wow. I mean, and you're, you're so funny. I mean, you know, I don't think it's so easy to just take for granted the print press that was invented in the 1500s, uh, you know, early uh, or 15th century. And so it's easy to just um, just forget that for centuries, if generation after generation, things were literally written down by hand and you are studying right. – you're you're studying how to approach the study of manuscripts. I mean, you're you're examining them and critiquing them. Correct. Yeah. Um, and so you went to me, which I'm assuming there's an incredible center there, specifically a program to do just this. There is. Yep. It's it's a really interesting program, just because uh, they don't focus on any particular culture. It's uh, just general around the world, Asia, Africa, and Europe. So it's full of. Uh, oriental scholars it's uh it's full like there's a another lady in my program studying turkology uh there's greek epigraphers um just any culture you can imagine that's super it's interesting super... how uh all, all of those fields they're trying to combine those disciplines to try to like there's a lot of things from uh asian studies that haven't been applied to greek studies and greek philologists can assist with uh, Judaic studies and that sort of thing. So there's a cross-pollination of disciplines that they're trying to uh, inculcate there. Well, let's get let's get into some of the content. Um, uh, the listeners know over the last several episodes, over the last several months, I've been doing some episodes on things related to origins of the, the earth, origins of the universe, Genesis chapter 1, creation, evolution, those sorts of things. Um, I recently had the chance to interview some high-profile authors and, and really, really excited to, to produce some of those uh, or get a chance to get those episodes out. Um, and I recently did an episode on dinosaurs. And uh, my, uh, the, my a previous guest and friend of mine, Tyler Vela, sent me a Facebook message and said, Hey, Kenny, I think, I think you missed the boat a little bit on your episode on dinosaurs. And uh, Tyler, if you're listening, shout out to you. And he said, you've got to um, – You've got to get Ben on your podcast. You've got to talk to this guy. And so he sent me a, uh, a YouTube link um, with your YouTube page. And I checked out some of your work and I thought to myself, ben, uh, Tyler's right. I've got to get Ben on the show. And so I want, I want to kind of hand it over to you. Um, I want to kind of, I'll ask you a few questions and then you just take it from there. And then I'll ask you some follow-up questions. Uh, basically, uh, tell us about, um, you know, th- the question I frequently get is, are dinosaurs in the Bible? That's kind of the first question. And then frequently people ask the question, or you've heard, you know, certain people say, well, the Leviathan and the behemoth in the Old Testament, those are the dinosaurs. And then, of course, there are other people that would say, no, that's not dinosaurs. That's a a hippo and a crocodile. Um, And so that that discussion comes up. So I want to hand it over to you. You tell me, are dinosaurs mentioned in the Bible? Um, 
And and are the Leviathan or the Behemoth referring to dinosaurs or hippos or crocodiles or something different altogether? Uh, right. I haven't seen any place in the Bible where I believe dinosaurs are described. Um, the the best one to start with uh, in terms of both Leviathan and Behemoth would be Leviathan. And the reason for that is that uh, unlike with Behemoth, with Leviathan, we actually have other ancient Near Eastern texts that mention Leviathan by name. He's he's applied with the same titles in the Hebrew Bible, and a lot of these texts are older than the Bible. So we actually have uh, quite a bit of good comparative data that identifies Leviathan. He's he's not at all com- uh, compatible with a dinosaur. He's not at all compatible with a crocodile either. I'm I'm convinced that Leviathan is a Northwest Semitic chaos god. And uh, just to open up, I'll go ahead and show you here. Uh, there was an ancient port city called Ugarit, and it's in modern Syria. It was excavated in the 1920s. Um, at Ugarit, the language is closer to biblical Hebrew than any other ancient language that we've discovered. I'll go ahead and read you a passage from Isaiah. It's Isaiah 27.1. This is about Leviathan. In that day, Yahweh will punish with his greatly fierce and mighty sword, Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. In Hebrew, these words, fleeing serpent, there's the Hebrew word barach for, uh, for fleeing, and then twisting is akoltan in Hebrew. Now I'm going to quote to you a, a passage from the Ugaritic text, which is it's much older than, than Isaiah. Uh, the text is called KT, KTU-15. You smote Latanu, the fleeing serpent, annihilated the twisting serpent, the dominant one who has seven heads. Now, in Ugaritic, because it's such a similar language, these these two words, fleeing serpent and twisting serpent, are uh, complete cognates. So the uh, Ugaritic word fleeing, barach, and then the Ugaritic word twisting, koltan. And you'll notice in the uh, in the Ugaritic text, it says Leviathan is the dominant one who has seven heads, or Latanu, he's the dominant one who has seven heads. We actually have uh, biblical literature that talks about Leviathan having multiple heads, which is something that most young earth creationists never notice, primarily because most publishing uh, aren't familiar enough with Hebrew grammar to notice it. So if you look at Psalm 74:14 it says you crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave him for food to the inhabitants to the inhabitants of the wilderness. In Hebrew it's The word heads of the phrase heads of Leviathan uh, it contains what's called a serayod. Uh, plural construct. So the word Leviathan is singular, but the word heads is plural. So here, grammatically, you have single Leviathan with multiple heads. So he's a hydra, um, which is exactly how the Ugaritic texts uh, speak of him, the dominant one who has seven heads. When 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 the Bible is using this ca- this this Leviathan character or creature, where we're not to assume that the Bible is coming up with something brand new, you're saying it is likely that. There are other cultures that use this exact terminology for a creature. And in this particular case, uh, we're, we're seeing it ha- as a creature that's got multiple heads, which does, which the last time I checked, crocodiles and hippos don't have multiple heads. 
and I don't know anything about dinosaurs, but uh, <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure I've never seen a gator with multiple heads. Right. We don't have anything in the archaeological record of a, of a multi-headed dinosaur. Um, so I think young earth creationists have always had this problem with the passage where it talks about this creature fire breathing. So you've had to, you have to come up with all these explanations, you know, electric eels, they can produce electricity, um, bombardier beetles, they can produce, you know, hot gases out of their abdomen. So they tried to show with through proof of concept that maybe a fire breathing dinosaur would have been possible. But now you have this additional element added of this thing has multiple heads. Another thing that's worth bringing up is the fact that the way a lot of biblical authors talk about Leviathan, if you take them, uh, if you take these figures of speech literally, then they're contradictory. So in Psalm 74, the passage um, describes God's defeat of Leviathan in conjunction with the creation of the world. But in the Isaiah passage that I read to you, in that day, Yahweh will punish Leviathan with his fierce and mighty sword. That passage talking about is talking about Leviathan being destroyed at the eschaton. So the question is, you know, when Psalm 74 talks about Leviathan being killed uh, in conjunction with the creation of the world, that's obviously not an element that's mentioned in Genesis. The author is obviously trying to do something metaphorical. And, and then so, if you were to take that literally, then it wouldn't correspond with Isaiah's statement that, no, we always going to defeat Leviathan at the last day. So... The, if the biblical authors are not meaning to tell us about an actual creature, it's not like, right, Job or Isaiah or the psalmist. They're not looking at some actual, you know, multi-headed, fire-breathing dragon creature of some sort. And you're saying that, that there's there's something else going on here. Um, give, give us an idea, maybe what what is the biblical author trying to, to uh, trying to communicate to us? Well, in the ancient Near East. Um, the motif of, of the chaos dragon is it's common all over the place. So Psalm 74 is written in Babylon. The Jews tell us point blank that they're in Babylon while they're singing this song. Um, the Babylonian creation myth is it talks about the, the king of the gods, Marduk, has to slay or he has to slay this uh, watery chaos dragon named Tiamat. Tiamat, the text describes how uh, Marduk crushes her heads. And she's a representation of chaos in the ancient Near Eastern worldview. Um, in the Ugaritic texts, those are that's Baal literature. Uh, the god Latanu has to be slayed by Baal for Baal to demonstrate himself as king of the gods and for him to preserve the created order of things. So what I've been trying to argue is that we can, if we read, um, for example, Leviathan's mentioned in Job, which Job actually mentions Leviathan in several places and. The way that he described Leviathan earlier is precisely consonant with how other ancient Near Eastern texts use the dragon. It talks about the fleeing serpent, uh, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, Yahweh piercing him and defeating him and uh, defeating the sea, particularly. Um, when Job uses Leviathan, he talks about Leviathan at the end of, of a list of natural animals. So a lot of young earth creationists have argued, look, we have this lineup of a horse, an ostrich, uh, the vulture. And then it comes down to Leviathan and Behemoth. So Leviathan and Behemoth must also be literal animals as well. What I think is actually going on is the Job author, he's gone through all these different elements of creation. And then in order to, to cap it off with the grand finale, personification of the created order itself. So he's gone from describing elements of the created order in order to praise God to describing 
this monstrous personification of of chaos itself. When you say chaos god, the, the, the god of this this you know this deity of chaos, you're, you're saying that there were people in the Near East in that part in that region of the world in that in that time period that were actually worshiping this deity. They weren't worshiping him. Uh, when I say when I say that like. Tiamat is a god, for example. Tiamat is is in no way uh, looked upon favorably in Babylonian religion. She's the great enemy, uh, chaos, and chaos is the the enemy of order and the enemy of the state. I simply I simply refer to Leviathan as a god simply because that's the way that we would refer to if, if we read about Tiamat and other ancient Near Eastern myths. We read about Latanu, who Baal has this fight with. We would, in common parlance, just refer to them as gods. Got it. Obviously, in the biblical text, the whole point of mentioning Leviathan over and over is that there's no way that he's any sort of match for Yahweh. So I wouldn't say at all that that's indicative that it's uh, polytheistic, of course. Right. And so in essance, in Job, I mean, in essence, you were, Job, the biblical author there, is is basically making the point that the, the, that Yahweh, the creator, is bigger and stronger than all of these things. And even the even the 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 thing that pers- the personified chaos, the thing that stands against order and structure, the thing that would not be looked kindly upon, but would somehow seemingly be powerful or destructive, even that is not a match for our God, the, the one true God Yahweh. That is sort of in essence the the sentiment there, Job. That that's exactly it. And and when you combine all those elements, I mean, this thing it breathes fire. That's very apparent in Job. It has multiple heads in Psalm seventy four. Isaiah says that he'll be killed at the eschaton, which is contradictory if you take it literally with uh, Psalm 74, which talks about Leviathan being killed in conjunction with the creation of the world. The fact that he has cognate titles, the fleeing serpent and the twisting serpent and all these other ancient Near Eastern texts, um, I think all of this indicates pretty clearly that it's not a crocodile and it's also not uh, a plesiosaur like the Creation Museum wants you to believe. Curious when when was this being written? I know you're saying. I mean, there are other near near Eastern texts, not obviously not the Hebrew text that you're referring to. That you're talking to these other you know, the, these other texts. Um, when when were they written? They predate the Old Testament. Some of them, I'm assuming. Right. So, for example, the passage I was reading to you out of Isaiah, um, that's an eighth century text, and I can't remember off the top of my head when Ugaritic civilization collapsed, but it's many centuries before Isaiah lived. And it's not that the biblical text is taking uh, these these descriptions of Leviathan from other cultures. The point is that the the Bible is Northwest Semitic culture, so it's it shares in these in these ancient traditions. It's not that it's borrowing or stealing from, say, Ugarit, which we know historically could not have happened. Which is not all that different, to be honest, than what what many preachers do in our contemporary context. Um, today in the 21st century, they, they might rattle off, rattle off a list of things that are prominent in our culture that would maybe cause Christians to be concerned. And the preacher may be making the point that none of these things can stop the sovereign hand of our God. And, and so, I mean, in essence, that's what Isaiah is doing, or that's what the psalmist is doing, uh, and Job is doing to some extent, correct? Right. And and I think if, if you read the biblical passages on Leviathan in their ancient Near Eastern context, I think they're quite beautiful. I have I don't think there's any theological problem with them at all. So tell me um, about the behemoth then. Right. So when it become when it comes to behemoth, 
Um, the first thing you have to recognize is that uh, Behemoth is mentioned right next to Leviathan, and Behemoth and Leviathan are sort of viewed in dyad. They've always been interpreted as, I guess, sort of sort of brothers within within this textual tradition. The poetic forms that describe them are uh, very similar as well. So there's sort of a uh, parallelism between Leviathan and Behemoth. So what I what I've argued is that you we can't just interpret Leviathan as the seven-headed fire-breathing ancient Near Eastern chaos deed and then Behemoth as, say, a hippopotamus. Um, but I also don't think that the arguments that use a dinosaur are very convincing either. Because that, that uh, is a com that's a common belief or, or assertion from uh, you know my young Earth creation brethren out there. Right. Well, I think the first thing that you should consider when you think of, of the word behemoth, like what would be the most obvious etymology? And anyone who's taken, you know, one semester of Hebrew knows the word behema. It, it can mean beast more generally, but usually uh, in most contexts it'd be used to refer to just cattle. And the word, you know, behemoth, uh, that oat ending is a, it's a intensifier in Hebrew. If you try on for size the uh, the young Earth interpretation that this thing is a, a Brachiosaurus or an Argentinosaurus, uh, there's several things to consider. I mean, first, if you were going to describe a back Brachiosaurus and you were uh, Job and you're trying to praise God through how mighty this creature is, think about you know what descriptions you would give of this creature. What would be the first physical feature that you would that you would praise in your poetry? It would be his several stories high neck. Right. The biblical author never mentions anything anything like that. He never mentions, you know, that this thing is reptilian or that it has scales. It'd be like describing a giraffe and not mentioning its neck, like praising the glory of a giraffe and not mentioning its neck. So I think automatically the young earth interpretation, the idea that this thing is a dinosaur is pretty suspicious. Most likely, uh, whatever it's describing would have to be in parallel with Leviathan. So we wouldn't say it's ridiculous to assert that a multi-headed a fire-breathing dragon is describing a real creature. So I think the most likely interpretation is that Behemoth is sort of a uh, mythopoeic creature in parallel with that. The primary passage, or the primary aspect of this passage, as you well know, that uh, people that interpret it as a dinosaur will cite is uh, the reference to its tail being like a cedar. And I think that's really the linchpin of, of interpreting this passage. I'll go ahead and read the relevant verses that describe its tail. Behold, his strength is in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He extends his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like bars of iron. And then there's the parallel line that restates this information. And his power in the muscles of his belly. He extends his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like bars of iron. So I've argued that this passage that mentions its tail is actually a poetic parallelism. So the first line, whatever that means, has to communicate roughly the same idea that the second line means in verse 17. So if you're looking at the passage, the sinews of his thighs are knit together. The word for thighs there in a in Hebrew, in both uh, Aramaic and in Arabic literature, it refers to the testicles. So whatever tail means in this passage has to be 
a parallel concept with the testicles. And uh, when I say that this term, pachad, uh, is translated as testicles, uh, for example, in the New King James Version, it's translated as his stones are knit together. Um, in the Latin Vulgate, it's translated as testiculorum. So my understanding of this passage is that tail is a reference to, to this creature's male anatomy. And there are five or four arguments for why I believe this is the case. So I'll go ahead and uh, list these off for you. The first is that the word thighs, pachad in Aramaic and Arabic ref as a cognate refers to the testicles. Since this passage is in parallel uh, poetic structure, then the word for tail must also refer to uh, something similar to the testicles. Then you have the verb that's associated with this tail, which is chafetz. It refers to extending or stiffening. Uh, for example, in the ESV, it's translated, I believe, as uh, he stiffens his tail like a cedar. But this verb, if you uh, go into a concordance and look it up, it can also mean things like desire or delight. For example, there are passages where it talks about how Yahweh, he chafetz in the righteous. He, he takes delight in the righteous. So if you translate this as a sexual euphemism, as opposed to just referring to his literal tale, it fulfills all of these meanings in a way that's uh, poetically satisfying, in a way that just taking it as a literal tale doesn't. Uh, a third reason would be the fact that the term translated strength here, as in his strength is in his loins. Uh, that Hebrew word in passages like Genesis 49.3, Deuteronomy 21.17 it refers to uh, specifically sexual virility. And then my fourth reason for thinking that the tale here refers to is male anatomy is the fact that ancient post-biblical Hebrew also uses the term tale here as a euphemism for the male appendage. So you're, if, someone is, if someone is listening to this for the first time and they've grown up in a, in a her church heritage that tells them to believe, you know, the, 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 the most what I would call the 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 the, the plainest uh, vanilla understanding of the text. This is uh, the behemoth is a, a large creature, um, and it may mean dinosaur. Um, and they're and they're hearing you, and they're saying, "Listen, Ben, you're twisting the scripture here to make it seem something it's not." How do you respond to that person? Uh, my response would be that I've never seen a young earth interpretation that tries to make this into a dinosaur account for the fact that this is Hebrew wasif poetry with parallel poetic couplet structure. The fact that whatever uh, the word tail means has to be in correspondence with the fact that it, uh, the other passage also mentions his sexual anatomy. Are there other texts that mentioned the behemoth outside of the scripture, like the Leviathan? I think the answer is no, but I just want to make sure. There's not, but there is one that's close. And it's actually um, the same text that I read earlier about Leviathan. Interesting. So I'll, I'll see if I can pull it up here. So it seems like the Leviathan, the behemoth, as you mentioned earlier, they're sort of sibling characters to some extent, or they're connected in some way or another, even outside of the biblical passages. Right, so this is a passage um, from the Ugaritic text. It's the one that I read earlier, but I'll read the, the extended version of it. Surely I lifted up the dragon. I destroyed the twisting serpent, the tyrant with the seven heads. I destroyed Arshu, beloved of El. I put an end to El's calf attic. So there are a lot of uh, Old Testament scholars that think that the Ugaritic text here, 
they also had this concept of uh, Latanu being paired with this divine bull, which is the closest that we have in terms of contextual data for uh, a hypothesis for what uh, behemoth is, which the evidence is good simply because the word behemoth is formed off a word that's commonly used for a bull or, or a cow. Um, I'll read you another parallel here that uh, I find interesting. So if, you, if you've ever read the Epic of Gilgamesh, you know there's a, a passage in it where uh, I believe it's the goddess uh, Ishtar becomes upset with Enkidu and Gilgamesh, and she sends the divine bull of heaven. She unleashes it on them to uh, destroy them. And when the text describes it, it says that it, quote, drank the water of a river in great slurps. With each slurp, it used up one mile of the river, but its thirst was not satisfied. And this, I think, is reminiscent of what we read of Behemoth in uh, Job chapter 40, verse 23, quote, Behold, if the river is turbulent, he is not frightened. He is confident, though the Jordan rushes against his mouth. So you can see that there's a little bit of parallelism there. And so, in, in essence, when I'm reading the fact that God has that, that, that God is su supreme even over the Leviathan and the behemoth, I, I am not to think that God is supreme over a hippo, a hippo or a crocodile, even in even in amplified versions of them, or that God is supreme over dinosaurs, but that, that God is actually supreme over the 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 thing that even even over chaos, uh, even and even over these the the these mythical creatures, they represent things in the in that particular culture god is supreme even over those things that are represented by these particular mythical creatures yes and, and chaos in the ancient near east is the greatest of all enemies um this is we know from all sorts of ancient near eastern texts when you have your god defeating the forces of chaos that demonstrates his kingship his dominion over creation there's no small amount of theology in that in my opinion, you know, based on what you're saying here, if I discount this as only being a dinosaur or only being a creature, I've actually stripped the passage of some of its most potent uh, understanding. Some of the most potent lessons we learned from this passage um, are being are being ripped away from it. Right, and that's a fear. That's a fear of mine. Is that when usually when these passages are discussed, we're debating about evolution and. Uh, that sort of thing, rather than actually gaining the theological points from the passage. We're so obsessed with the passage in terms of its apologetic value that we're not actually valuing its theological content. Man, that's a great, great point. Which is really, if I'm honest, that that's what has sort of led me to kind of rethinking Genesis chapter 1 and causing me to sort of reevaluate some things. You know, I used to take the more concordous uh, approach. I used to be a really, really rabid defender of young earth creationism and felt that was the only appropriate uh, uh, interpretation. But I've since sort of realized that, that, that maybe there are other views, you know, namely the, the one I've, I'm kind of you know, leaning toward these days is the the framework hypothesis. I really think that's the most coherent, hermeneutically, hermeneutically speaking. And I think it actually gives us the richest theology, if I'm honest. And I think that's sort of what you're proposing here. Right. I, I don't take the framework hypothesis myself, but the idea that Genesis 1 is written according to a mirrored structure, that the days are corresponding to each other in a pattern, is... Uh, for example, I just read Mark Smith's book on Genesis 1, and he's professor. 
he's one of the world's leading uh, Hebraists at Princeton University, and he also argues for that position. I think it's undeniable. Well, since you mentioned it, I'd love to get your thoughts um, uh, on on Genesis chapter one, origins of the earth. So I know I know this I know this is always a, is a loaded question, but I'm just curious as you approach Genesis one, is there a particular hermeneutic or position that you would say uh, is the one you would embrace or you would you would be a proponent of? Right. So I, I was trained as an apologist at, at Southern and and through Biola. So originally when I began reading Genesis 1, my interest was in defending it apologetically. And I think it's interesting that that actually, in a lot of ways, uh, prevented me from reading it honestly. Um, what I've been moving towards and trying to do now is to try to uh, read Genesis 1 in its ancient Near Eastern context and trying to get others to read Genesis 1 in, in its ancient Near Eastern context. One of the problems that I see with the church is right now is that we have all this theology, centuries and centuries of theology cluttered into Genesis 1 that we've inherited. But the ancient Near Eastern data, the tens of thousands of ancient tablets that contextualize the entire Old Testament, we've only gained those uh, for the most part only after the 19th century uh, throughout the 18th century. So a problem there is that our theology, we haven't designed our theology to be able to accommodate all of this additional information. There's a lot of theological ideas that are now obsolete, uh, can be disproven. Uh, the church is, is very undereducated on this information. Uh, it hasn't been filtered down to the pew. I don't think it's being taught very well in seminary, generally speaking. Um, so let me ask you this. I, I once heard uh, Al Mohler, uh, for the people who are listening to this not familiar, Al Mohler is the president of Southern Seminary, obviously, where, where you where you uh, did some undergrad, we did your undergrad work. And I'm a, I'm a fan of Al Mohler, obviously, um, big, big fan of, of his work. I listen to the briefing daily. And so I, um, I, I've appreciated that. I heard him say something, and he was having a, uh, a debate with, with, with someone I've interviewed on the podcast before, and they were discussing the idea Al Mohler made the point that he holds to a young earth, a young earth creation view um, and, and, a, you know, a more, a more literal concordance view of, of Genesis one. And the reason, and part of his reason amongst many reasons, but part of his, his reason that he argued for was that he says, basically if, if to, to say that we have new information, I'm paraphrasing. He said it's to say that we have new information that gives us a different understanding than let's say the vast majority of the church from, you know, from the fourth or fifth century up until, you know, the 1800s, uh, including the, you know, the Renaissance or Reformation eras, we basically are saying we have more information to have better theology than they do. Al Mohler is uncomfortable with taking that position. You know, he says that there's a potential arrogance there to assume that. Um, so curious, how, how would you respond to Mueller's sentiment there? I mean, there's a lot of things that could be said. I mean, for example, in the early church, the majority of people didn't even have access to most of the New Testament. The entire, you know, ancient Jewish civilization before Jesus came, they didn't have access to the New Testament. Uh, so we're certainly more privileged than they were. Uh, it seems arbitrary to me. I mean, if you just look at the data, for example, uh, ancient Egyptian literature, no one could read ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs until the French translated it with the Rosetta Stone, which was a pretty modern phenomenon. Um, 
We didn't discover the Dead Sea Scrolls, for example, until 1947. And those weren't even, the vast majority of those weren't even published until uh, the 90s. Uh, if you think about those tens of thousands, or actually hundreds of thousands of ancient tablets that Irving Finkel's playing with, and the, we have tens of thousands of uh, ancient tablets, cuneiform tablets from Mesopotamia. The vast majority of those have been discovered in the 18th and 19th century. In terms of archaeology as a modern discipline and excavation of the ancient Near East, all of that's modern, vast majority of it's after World War II. So the vast majority of the church hasn't had access to these texts. So I think he's underestimated the, the degree to which they help us. And, and I guess that's, and you and I were talking before we started recording. I asked you, why are people not familiar with these texts? And, and a large part of the reason is simply because they just were not available to us until relatively recently. Yeah. And it's also a big problem with them is that they do render many theological traditions obsolete, particularly in a text as contentious as Genesis. So I think there's, you know, a little bit of vested interest in the church to not, not promote a lot of them. So it doesn't bother you to say, Hey, the vast majority of church history, they believe the particular thing or they interpreted passages in a particular way. And I'm okay with saying, Hey, the recent data we have gives us, you know, really a privilege. We, you know, we shouldn't do this boastfully or arrogantly. Um, or we shouldn't approach right. this with arrogance, but we should be humble to think that we we actually do have an upper hand on some of our brethren from from the Reformation and beyond that. You know, in earlier generations of the church, because we do have access to data that previous generations of the church did not have access to. Exactly. Um, and I I would argue um, is that you know is that 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 actually holds us accountable to actually to be more studious, to, to be more astute in how we approach these sort of topics. It's forgivable if someone doesn't have all of the data that they would have uh, some flawed theological conclusions. However, if you do have access to the data and you willfully ignore it, that's probably not the most helpful approach. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, this is interesting, Ben, and this has been really, really uh, great stuff. Before I let you go, tell the, tell the audience how they can follow you What's the best way for them to follow you if they want to? Uh, best way right now is on you. I'm on YouTube. Uh, my username is Pixels and Papyrus. And we'll make sure we'll have that linked up in the show notes uh, so people can check that out. So you can head to our website, theologyfortherestofus.com. Look at the show notes for this episode, and it'll take you a link right over to the YouTube page there. Ben, from Germany, thank you again for taking time out, investing in my audience. Ben, I, I really, really appreciate your time. And there you have it. That was my interview with Ben Stanhope from the nation of Germany. So thankful uh, for him. Ben, if you're listening to this, uh, thanks again for taking time out and being willing to record uh, in the middle of the night, your time uh, to be able to invest in the audience. I would encourage everyone to check him out on YouTube. He's got some really, really good stuff. And I, I think the, the, the grand point that Ben was making, I think is really, really valuable. And that is that there are things we learn from uh, other bits of information, other pieces of data or other sources of data uh, give us better understanding of the cultural context that the people were living in when the Bible was being written, both both the biblical authors and the, the biblical audiences. And that gives us a better understanding of what the biblical author was likely trying to communicate and a, and a better understanding as to how the biblical audience would have understood um, 
those particular you know writings and that gives us a better understanding as to how to apply the scripture to our lives which I think is really really uh, helpful in this particular case he, he was basically making the point that the Leviathan was this m- uh, mythical creature that personified or sort of symbolized symbolizes this idea of, of chaos and that in the, in the natural world God is doing great things and God is bringing order and the exact opposite of that is chaos, that the chaos is the opposite of what God brings, and that the, the biblical author is in, is in essence telling us that God is bigger than all the things we can see, and that God is bigger than even what we might perceive to be his greatest enemy, and that is chaos or lack of order. Uh, you know, that, that even the things we cannot see where, with our own eyes that seemingly are big and strong, that seemingly could undermine God's will and God's work, that none of those things can even stand the chance in the face of God. That even the behemoth, the, the mythical creature that that is big and strong, um, that that we could not take on, God can still crush. God is still bigger than God is still supreme over all those things. And I think that all Christians, no matter what your perspective or hermeneutic uh, when it comes to Genesis 1 or other similar passages, all of us can agree God is supreme. And that's, in essence, what Ben was trying to communicate, that that's what the biblical authors are trying to communicate. That, that the Leviathan of the behemoth is not necessarily a reference to a dinosaur or, or another animal or a creature or some prehistoric you know, creature that has already gone extinct, but that, that the Leviathan and the behemoth are references to mythical creatures that symbolize things that would seek to come against God or undermine God, but God is still bigger than those things. God is supreme over all those things. And, and in essence, the, the study of ancient texts and manuscripts from that part of the world help us understand the, the the richer and deeper theology that's sort of on display in some of these biblical texts and I think that is I think that is beautiful and helpful so I'm so help uh, I'm so thankful for scholars like Ben and people who are training to become scholars like Ben um, because they, they are learning things and acquiring new data to bring to the table that give us a better understanding of the character and nature of God. And as I said to Ben in the interview, and I, I would say to all of you listening to this, that we living in the modern era that have more information, I think God is going to hold us accountable to uh, hold us accountable to a higher standard. Uh, as I said in the interview to Ben, it, it's almost appropriate or um, uh, almost acceptable and forgivable if someone has flawed theology in some ways, if they didn't have the right data to understand it. But for those of us to have the right data, we have all the sources of information to help us better understand the scripture. We have uh, loads of biblical scholars out there. We, we have lots of, of access to the Bible in multiple translations and understandings about the, the cultural context of the scriptures. For all of us today, There is no excuse to be ignorant of these sorts of things. So I encourage all of us, be uh, be students of the scriptures and and pursue Jesus and pursue the studies, uh, pursue everything that could help you understand the Bible as as thoroughly and as diligently as possible. I I hope this this interview has been helpful and insightful to you. If you have any questions about anything I said or anything Ben said, feel free to shoot me an email. Or if you need clarification on anything I said or Ben said, uh, feel free to to reach out to me. I'd love to hear from you. The email address is 
Hey Ortiz at theologyfortherestofus.com. That's H-E-Y-O-R-T-I-Z at theologyfortherestofus.com. Or if you have a question or a topic that you want me to address on a future episode of the podcast, whether it's related to uh, this episode or anything related to this episode, that's fine. Even if it's something totally seemingly out of left field, that's cool too. I'd love to hear from you. Shoot me an email. Or you can find me on Twitter. Connect with me there. I love the tweet and love connecting with people on Twitter. Uh, So find me there. My Twitter handle is at Kenneth Ortiz. That's K-E-N-N-E-T-H-O-R-T-I-Z. Thanks again for listening. I'm Kenny Ortiz, and this has been Theology for the Rest of Us.